The Bible says my king is a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king.
him praise this morning. What a way to start off our service, but to give our Heavenly Father all the glory and all the honor and all the praise that he deserves. Hey, you can go ahead and take a seat for just a second. My name is Deborah Gladney, and we are just so happy that you're here with us. Whether if you're here in the South or in North or in watching online, um, we are just thrilled to have you um, worshiping with us today. We have a very special service in store for you. Um, Pastor Mark is going to bring um, another powerful message in the Clash of Dynasties 2 series. Um, but I do want to share with you something that's really exciting that's going to be happening in the North Auditorium starting September 8th. So we have something called Midwest Mingle. Mingle. Midwest Mix, all right? <laughs> Midwest Mix. It's going to be um, some country music flair. So if you like that genre of music, it's going to be right up your alley. Um, we'll be sharing some information in the next coming weeks. So be on the lookout for that. But every Sunday, the Midwest Mix band will be in there playing live music for both services. So you definitely want to check it out. So at this time, we invite you to stand um, up to... Stand back up to your feet as we continue to sing out some amazing songs today. We're about to sing about the victory we have in Jesus Christ because he has overcome death. And that's good news. Here we go. When I heard an old, old story, how Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. And I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning, and then I repented of my sin, and won victory, that's right, I sing, oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever, he saw me.
that victory today that only comes through his blood, but that victory is already won. So let's proclaim this together, asking who can stop that God who is for us? And who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? He is for us. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? There is no one stop the Lord. Sing that in the face of the battle that you're facing today. Say, If you'll forgive me for beginning on a personal note, um, I will ask for your prayers. I seem to have caught this respiratory thing that's going on or going around, and because of that, I'm not quite even sure I can finish this message. And I was able to speak at 4 o'clock last night, so they're running 4 o'clock along with this one. In case I'm not able to finish, they'll just switch over to that. But I would ask for your prayers. It's hard for me because this is perhaps the most complicated message and maybe the most important I'll deliver all year, and it's hard for me to understand why I'm not feeling well in such a critical moment. In fact, I was getting ready to leave for the campus yesterday afternoon, and I was just kind of talking to Mary Alice and saying, I, I don't understand why in such an important message I'm feeling so bad. And Mary Alice said, that's why you're feeling bad, because it's such an important message. And I don't blame the devil, really. If I was him, I wouldn't like this message either. So... Uh, I'm going to do my best, and you're going to pray for me, and I just ask for your, your, your help and your prayers as I try to preach this message. I'm speaking on the rise and the fall of the last empire, and that's what empires do. If you study world history, they always fall, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus or Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, Suleiman the Magnificent, Napoleon, Hitler. The empires always rise, and they very definitely fall. Man carries within him the seeds of his own destruction. That is why no empire is a lasting empire. There is an interesting statement in the book of Hebrews about Abraham and the way he lived his life. And it says that he looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. And that chapter goes on to say, for here in our world, we find no continuing city. In other words, whatever system of government man brings about, whatever empire rises, 
it will always fall because man carries within him the seeds of his own destruction. The Bible calls it sin. And sin, just basically, to coin a term, is ungodness. God is who he is. His righteousness, his rightness is very obvious. But we, as human beings, have within us ungodness. And it is that ungodness that always brings down empires. Humans and power just don't go together. There is a saying that we have. It goes like this. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, that is always borne out, but it's not really true with this caveat. It is not power that corrupts. According to Jesus, the corruption's already there. The power just gives vent to it. But technically, in the outcome, I guess you could say that is true. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Man and power just do not go together. Well, today, we are going to be looking at the last empire. The Bible forecasts it and prophesies it. And we're going to see that it is going to rise and it will fall. It will rise quickly. In fact, as I'll teach today, it appears that this empire is going to do something that no other empire has ever done. And that is it will rise instantaneously. But it will fall just as quickly. The, the length of this empire is seven years. Now that's interesting because according to scripture, this empire will be bigger than any other empire in history. It'll be bigger because it'll be completely global. There has been no empire that has ruled every bit of the world's population, but this one will. So it's going to be bigger in that sense. It will also be bigger in the sense that the world is bigger. Did you know that until the year 1830, there were not one billion people on the planet? In all the world's recorded history, it took until the year 1830 to have one billion people. We had two billion by 19. Uh, 1930 and 3 billion by 1960, and now we're somewhere between 7 and 8 billion people. So just understanding the rapid rise of population in the last century, I think you would understand this empire is going to be bigger than any other for that reason, if for nothing else. But the collapse will come faster than the collapse of any other world empire in just seven years. And the reason it will collapse is that God is simply going to call time on this empire. God's going to just flip the stopwatch and it will be over. And as I'll teach you in a little while, just as it will come into being instantly, it will also collapse instantly. It is a good thing that this empire will not last because Jesus teaching about this while he was on the earth, Jesus preached a message that Bible scholars call the Olivet Discourse. It's in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. It's also in the Gospel of Luke, partially in Mark. But Jesus' teaching about this last empire had this to say. He said, it will be a time of great trouble. There will be more trouble than has ever happened since the beginning of the world. And nothing that bad will ever happen again. Breathe that in. Jesus said, this will be worse than any other time in history and it will never be this bad again. Now, accordingly, verse 22, we understand Jesus making this statement. But God has decided to make that terrible time short. If it were not short, no one would continue living. If you want to look at this time frame 
with more specificity, you could read Revelation chapters 6 through 19, because those chapters entail or explain these seven years that, well, we call the tribulation period, and the last three and a half are the great tribulation. And if you read what happens then, you will understand clearly why Jesus said it'll be the worst time, and God is shortening that time, because if it continued, no one would survive. Now, with that in mind, if I were sitting where you're sitting, either in South Auditorium, North Auditorium, watching online, watching on television, I would have a number of questions that I would want to ask. I, by nature, am questioning and tend to be a little bit on the skeptical side. So my questions that I would have, and you may have others, but my questions would be, well, if this is the last empire and it's yet to come, why are we studying Daniel? Because Daniel is a 2,600-year-old book. So why are we going back in time? Why are we going back to the future? Why are we studying the book of Daniel? And then I would want to know, how do we know that this empire is taking shape now? That's a good question. How do we know it's not something that's going to happen uh, 5,000 years from now, or 50 years from now, or 100 years from now? How do we know that it's at least taking shape now? I want to know about Jesus' statement. I want to know why it will be worse than any time in human history. And how do we know it's not a good thing? How do we know that this last empire isn't the utopia that we've all been hoping for? Why is it a bad thing if we see it taking shape now? I wanna know how it would affect me. You know, I think that's just the human question, isn't it? If you hear that there's gonna be a time that's worse than any other time in history, we wanna know, well, how's that going to affect me? And then if you're a little bit more of the philosophical bent, you might wanna know why. If God is all-powerful and world empires always fall because man carries within him the seeds of destruction and we have this future empire that's going to be the worst time in history, why would God allow such a thing? So each one of those questions or the answers to those questions could really comprise a series of messages and maybe we'll do that someday. You, of course, know if you're a new springer, you know that we have about 30 minutes of this message left to go. So to tackle those questions in 30 minutes is a bold endeavor, but we're going to get on our horse and ride. So let's begin with that first question. Why are we studying a 2,600-year-old book if we're talking about an empire left to come? We'll give you two reasons. And if you've been with us up till now, you know part of this already. When God gave Daniel the book of Daniel, he gave Daniel the schematic. In other words, God gave Daniel an overview of what is, well, to Daniel was the future. To us, part of it is history and part of it is prophecy. But God gave Daniel the outline or the schematic. If you were here in week three of our series, you will recall that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Babylon had carried Judah away captive. Daniel was one of the young captives that was brought over. Uh, to, to be taught the Babylonian way. They gave him a full ride, and Daniel ultimately wound up running Babylon. But God gave Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, a dream, and this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had this image of this tall metal man, and parts of the man were made up of different metals. The head was gold, the chest and arms were silver, the torso was bronze, and the legs were iron. And in the interpretation of the dream, if you were here with us, you will remember that God was giving Daniel a schematic of the near future. It's history to us now, but all these empires that God was teaching Daniel and ultimately Nebuchadnezzar about, um, they, were, they were future then. And God told Daniel to tell Nebuchadnezzar, the head is you. 
It, the head of gold is Babylon. And after Babylon came the chest and arms of silver, Medo-Persia. After that was the torso uh, of, of bronze, Alexander the Great in Greece. And then the legs and part of the feet made of iron was Rome. But as God taught Daniel and Daniel taught Nebuchadnezzar, there was one final empire, and that empire was the toes. Well, toes are pretty small when you consider the rest of our organs, and when you think about this kingdom only being seven years, there's a compelling reason why God had this last kingdom to be toes. Now, the toes, according to Daniel's vision, were comprised of iron and clay, signifying it was going to be a different kind of empire. With that in mind, let's read that part of the vision out of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. Now, there are a number of reasons why we know that those toes are a future kingdom. One of the reasons is, if you were in that study of Daniel chapter 2, the Bible indicates that in the day of that final kingdom will be when Jesus comes. So consequently, since we're waiting on that, this empire for that reason and others is something that is yet to come. Now, as you can imagine, we would have a lot to say about that, but our time is short. So let's just talk about what's especially important. We learn from Daniel's vision where this empire is going to be situated or led from. We know that the legs and the feet were iron, which talked about Rome, and toes come out of the feet. So we know that this empire is based in Europe. When we read about the Bible, the Bible prophesies about last-day empires. For instance, the Bible talks about what we would know as the Muslim world, or Russia. The Bible talks about Russia. The Bible also talks about um, the eastern block of nations. But it is very clear that this last one-world global empire is situated in Europe. So, why do we study Daniel? Because God gave Daniel the schematic. But if you were here last week, you know that God gave Daniel something else. He gave Daniel the schedule. God often gives us the future, but he rarely ever gives us a clock. But in the book of Daniel, God gives a clock. Now, again, you can refer back to the message from last week if you want to know more about this. But in Daniel's vision, uh, or in Daniel's prayer that God answered, God said to Daniel, 490 years is designed for your people Israel and for Jerusalem. And at the end of that 490 years, God said, everything will be straightened out, which of course would raise a very big question for us because if Daniel was written in the 6th century, 490 years have clearly passed and everything's not straightened out. But again, as we saw last week, this 490 years is broken up into three sections. After the second complete section, which would have been 483 years, God told Daniel Messiah would come, he would die, it would appear like he accomplished nothing, and that would leave seven years. Well, what happened with that vision that God gave Daniel and that schedule is that the clock stopped with the crucifixion of Jesus. 
And now we're still in that clock stoppage. 2,000 years have passed. We know, we know now why. Because God had this cool thing called the church that he wanted to do. And we're part of that. But right now that clock has stopped leaving seven years. Now I want to read to you about what happens when that clock starts back up again. Because if you've ever heard about the Antichrist or the tribulation, this next statement God gave Daniel is going to be really salient to that. 927, book of Daniel, he, that pronoun refers to the Antichrist. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, in other words, seven years. In the middle of that seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. Now, there's so much to say there, but let's just review this. Daniel spells out the world empires. The clock stops. There's one empire left. It's based in Europe. It will last seven years, and it's led by somebody that the Bible calls the Antichrist. So that's why, and for many other reasons, why we're studying a 2,600-year-old book in order to ascertain what's going to happen in the future. And now, let's talk about another question that's very important to us today. And that is, how do we know if we see this empire taking shape right now? It's a really important question to me because I grew up listening to preachers preach about prophecy. And oftentimes, I would hear these preachers go a bridge too far, and they would start saying things are going to happen that the Bible didn't say. And because of that, I'm very sensitive to even go to a question like this. I understand that our church's credibility, mine personally, is on the line, so I don't want to go a bridge too far here. But let's ask this question. How do we know if we see this final empire taking shape right now? Well, there are many biblical reasons, but I love logic. And so let's just employ logic here for a moment. If it is the last empire, then it must come at the end. So how do we know if we're in the end times? It works like the transitive principle. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So if it's the last empire, it comes at the end. If we're at the end, then we must be viewing the last empire taking shape. Well, again, biblically, there are myriad reasons why we know we are in the end times, but there is one that trumps them all, and that is Jerusalem. Jesus, again, called this one, just like Babe Ruth pointed to the left outfield and said, I'm going to hit it right over there. Jesus called the way we would know that we're in the end times. And here's what he said. He said, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In effect, Jesus said, you will know here in the last days when Israel becomes sovereign over the city of Jerusalem again. June 7, 1967. I know most were a young church. Most of you were not born yet, but a few of us were. But June 7, 1967, almost inadvertently, Jerusalem came back into Israel's hands. I don't want to go into a history of Israel here, but it is interesting that when the state of Israel formed, they were reluctant to take back the old city of Jerusalem because they knew it would cause political ramifications. But in 1967, the Six-Day War happened. And what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of those powers in the region were putting pressure on Israel in 64 and 65, cutting off water, the water supply to Israel. And so in 1967, the Six-Day War began. 
Nasser, who was the leader in Egypt, said they were going to push Israel into the sea. I'm so thankful that my dad knew God's word. I can still remember I was 10 years old and sitting in the passenger seat of our 1966 Ford. And the radio was playing and dad was listening to the news. And it was the beginning of the Six-Day War. It was the first reports of the Six-Day War. And the news sounded pretty bleak because after all, Israel's enemies were huge and they were bankrolled and they were given hardware, military hardware by Russia. And so when the Six-Day War began, I was listening to a news report with my dad that Nasser had said they were going to push Israel off into the sea and it looked kind of like that. My dad turned to me, just like Joe Namath in Super Bowl III. Dad said, Israel will win, I guarantee it. And he was right. Six days later, all that Russian hardware was thrown out in the desert. And Israel's territory had expanded. But there is one part of this story that goes directly to Jesus' statement. And it's one part of the Six-Day War. Just a few days ago, I was at the Western Wall with my friend who is the Consul General for Israel. And we went to the Western Wall and we prayed together at that wall. And we were kind of quiet walking back to the car and got pretty much back to the car. And and my friend, who is an Israeli diplomat, said to me, Mark, what were you thinking about when you were at the wall? He probably was expecting me to think about something from the Bible. But I said, you know, I'm thinking about something from 1967. When the Israelis were fighting against the Jordanian troops in the old city of of Jerusalem, there was a walkie-talkie message from Lieutenant General Mordecai Gur, who was leading the troops as they went into the old city. And he radioed, and I love these words, they still give me chills. We're sitting on the ridge, and we're seeing the old city. Shortly, we're going to go in. And a few minutes later, Mordecai Gur radioed, the Temple Mount is in our hands. I repeat, the Temple Mount is in our hands. When, <laughs> when Galad asked me, what were you thinking about? I was thinking about that message from Lieutenant General Mordecai Gur. the Temple Mount is in our hands. Why am I thinking that? Because Jesus said, you will know you're in the end times when, Israel, when Jerusalem comes back into Israel's sovereign hands. So again, I could keep you here for a long time. The old debater in me would love to just unpack the evidence for you that we're living in the end times, but we'll just take the express lane and go directly to Jesus' point. We know that we're in the end times. For 52 years now, we've been coming in for a landing. So that would be good enough. But are there other ways in which we know that we are watching this final empire take shape? Well, again, I want to appeal to logic for all of you to listen to. And all of these points that I'm about to make deserve long discussion, but a lot of it has to do with modern technology, and you know more about it than I do, so you'll know what to do with these. So let me just sort of open the can right now. For there to be the last empire, as the Bible describes, a single one-world government, several things would have to happen that are only possible in our times. I used to listen to my dad preach about this stuff when I was a kid. And the contrarian part of me would sit out there and listen to him and say, Dad, I just don't see that happening. But think about these things that would have to be necessary to have a single one world government. For one, there would have to be global communication. There would be no possibility 
of a one-world government without global communication. Secondly, the sovereign economic walls would have to come down. We know that there are world powers that have their own currencies, they have their own economies, so consequently, we would have to see a future in which world economies would no longer be tied to sovereign powers. And here is a big one, and one that I, I watch all the time. There would have to be a decline in leadership quality, because sovereign nations don't tend to surrender sovereign power. But if there was a dearth, if there was a shortage of leadership acumen, then those peoples might be open to accepting a leader who appeared to have the solution. Well, we don't have to go very far. We can look at our own nation today and many of us who can look back in time and remember leaders in both parties who were skilled, and yet we look at our times today and it's a very different time frame. But it's not just in the United States. If you travel to any foreign countries and just watch the local news when you travel, you will discover this is a global thing, that the quality of leadership in our world is suffering. So I knew that would have to happen and very much it is happening today. But this last one that I wanna share with you is absolutely huge. And there's no getting around this. The Bible has tried so hard, and I guess really we're talking about God here. Let's, let's just say that. God has tried so hard for the last 2,600 years to tell us that this last empire is going to be different from any other empire in the history of the world. I don't know how we've missed this for so long. If you look at world empires, they have been military by nature. You have conquerors who have conquered other people groups and established empires. And, of course, it has taken a long time for these empires to develop because conquering other powers doesn't happen overnight. And it's been very difficult for these empires to hold these conquered peoples. But God has tried so hard for all these years to tell us this last empire is not going to be military at first, at least. In fact, if you want to look at the Antichrist, the Bible introduces him in the book of Revelation for the first time in Revelation chapter 6. Now, that's not the first time in the Bible the Antichrist is mentioned, just the first time in Revelation. And for all of you who would like to study the book of Revelation, but it's a little intimidating, could I just tell you that Revelation as a book is broken up into sections. Chapter 1 is the vision of the resurrected glorified Christ. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are about the church age. It's about seven churches. Revelation 4 and 5 is what those of us who are going to be raptured to heaven will experience in heaven while the tribulation is going on. But chapters 6 through 19 are the tribulation period. So we're not surprised that the Antichrist is introduced to us at the beginning of Revelation chapter 6. So how is the Antichrist introduced in Revelation 6-2? Watch this. This is interesting. John writes, I looked and behold a white horse. He, Antichrist, who sat on it had a bow and a crown was giving, given to him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, he's got a bow, but what does he not have? He doesn't have arrows. 
So what does that tell us about the Antichrist? Definitely the bow suggests that his desire, as we see later in that verse, is to conquer, but he goes out without ammunition because this is going to be a very different kind of empire. Now, and we, when we get into Revelation chapters 13 and 14, that's where we read a whole lot about the Antichrist, but it's spelled out for us, this economic empire of the last days. Revelation 13, 16, he, the Antichrist, required everyone to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead, and no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast, the Antichrist, or the number representing his name, which we know as 666. Wow. This is not a military empire, which explains how it could happen overnight with the throwing of a switch. Now, when I was a kid listening to my dad preach about this, the skepticism that was innate in me would really rush out at this point. Because my dad, seeing things in 1960s, 1970s terms, he kind of thought, well, perhaps it'll be a tattoo that you'll have to show in order to be able to buy or sell. And I would sit out there skeptical as I was and say, well, dad, you just don't know about the black market or the gray market. But, of course, I had no preparation for the times that you and I live in because those things are very easy now. See, this is one of the things about Bible prophecy that I think we need to understand now. Oftentimes, God prophesies things that will not be understood until the people that are in that context live it out. I think that's still the case. I mean, for instance, if you read in your Bible, if you opened up your Bible, and it said, and thou shalt speak unto the box on thy shelf, and it shall obey thy commands. Yea, verily, it shall issue your commands and make other boxes obey thy voice. If you read that 30 years ago, you're like, I don't know. Is that my music box on the shelf? Today, if you're reading that, you're saying, man, that's Alexa. So I do think there are things in the Bible that are not going to be understood until the people that are in that context live. But today when we think about this global empire and no one being able to buy or sell, it's not a real stretch for us because we know that if all holdings were electronic and there were no currencies, I mean, how many of us ever see actually the money we make? I never do. If, if all holdings were electronic and all transactions were electronic and participations in that system were voluntary and participations in those tra transactions were controlled centrally, then the most basic human power, the ability to buy or sell, would be owned. You see, that's the weird thing about this. There are people that would re reject military conquest. Well, I mean, look at what we're doing. I mean, I, me too. We, we sort of surrender all of our purchasing sovereignty to these electronic systems. So, if the most basic power, the power to buy and sell, would be in the hands of these institutions, and then they would therefore be more powerful than governments, and actually not, as we're seeing today, not even accountable to governments because they are global. And if someone gained control, voila, you have a single world empire and not one shot has to be fired. And there's another point here that I would ask you to consider. 
What makes this empire different from other empires? Well, those of you who like to study world history, what has always been the Achilles heel of conquering powers? It has been that it's easier to conquer than it is to occupy. That's always been what has been the seeds of destruction for world empires. But if you have control of everyone's ability to buy or sell, then occupation is not difficult. And we see this happening before our eyes today. We see these electronic cyberspace powers, and we're starting to feel the constriction. If there are messages that are politically incorrect, then oftentimes sites are taken down, and there are those who are not able to function. They're not able to sell their materials. Some are being demonetized because they don't fit the viewpoint of these systems. And we're just about there. Now, what I just said to you, I wrote Wednesday afternoon, and I went home after I finished writing with taking a break at this part of the sermon and went home and read the news. Last Wednesday, the day I was writing this, David Marcus, who is um, a leader, he is an executive with Facebook, was being grilled in Congress because Facebook is launching its cryptocurrency, Libra. And so David Marcus was having to answer questions in Congress about the fact that Congress saw this as being a threat. Arkansas Senator who, Tom Cotton, who's a Republican, a conservative, he was questioning David Marcus, and he said Silicon Valley has an obvious leftist bias, and there's growing evidence of censorship. He asked him, what assurance do conservatives have that these powers won't be used to disenfranchise? I, I found David Marcus's answers to be interesting. He said, as far as Libra and the Libra wallet is concerned, we wanted to ensure that people, as long as they have a legitimate use of the product, can do what they want to do with their money. Of course, there are some restrictions and regulated products, but my commitment to you is we will be thoughtful in writing these policies. And Senator Cotton said that doesn't sound like much of an assurance. And Marcus promised again they would be, quote, very thoughtful. And then he kept talking. He said, when it comes to writing this policy again, I'm committing that we will be very thoughtful. I have to say, as far as I'm concerned personally, I believe that we should only get in the way of very exceptional cases. And by being thoughtful of getting in the way of letting people do what they want to do with their money as long as it's lawful, but we also need to be thoughtful in how we write those policies. Well, I'm first person to be in favor of being thoughtful but I was born at night, not last night, and I know who's going to be doing the thinking. Facebook is. Well, after Marcus was on the hot seat with a conservative Republican, he wound up on the hot seat with a progressive Democrat. And that was California Democrat Brad Sherman who suggested that the effects could be like 9-11. Now, when I read that, I thought to myself, not too much in our times brings conservative Republicans together with progressive Democrats. But both sides were letting loose on Facebook's executive. Why? Because they understand clearly, leaders of both stripes, completely 
180-degree opposing political philosophies. They understand clearly that these cyberspace entities are more powerful and not accountable to national governments. Now, I want you to understand, I'm not saying that Facebook and Google and Amazon are setting up the last empire. These are businesses. I use them all. But my point is you can see the platform developing today. As I said, when my dad used to preach about this, he thought it was a tattoo that you would have to show. For us today, the technology is so in the zone, I don't need to speak on this really anymore. I do find it very salient, though, that this empire tends to begin with the throwing of a switch. It tends to begin instantly, which would lend itself toward being an electronic, digital, economic empire. And it tends to collapse just as easily. If you want to read about the collapse of this last world empire, you can read about it in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Now, the Bible assigns the metaphor Babylon to this last empire so that you'll recognize when we come across that word. But the Bible describes this empire collapsing several times in one hour. So let's read it. In Revelation 18 verse 10, the rulers, that means the world rulers at that point, will be afraid of her suffering the collapse of this single empire and stand far away. They will say, terrible, how terrible, oh, powerful city Babylon, your punishment came in one hour. And the merchants of the earth will cry and be sad for her. They will be sad because there's now no one to buy the things they sell. And there's a list of 27 individual products. And after that, slaves, human trafficking. The merchants will cry and say, all your rich and fancy things have disappeared. You will never have them again. So this one world global economic empire comes to be, and seven years later, it collapses in an hour. You want me to guess? It would only be a guess. But if we think about this global system that we taking shape, see taking shape right now, it is magnificently amazing. I don't like to shop, so consequently, I've got the Amazon one swipe down. It is magnificent. But for anybody who is thinking, and that's not always a big crowd in our world today, but to anyone who is thinking, we should also be aware that it is magnificently fragile. It depends on electricity. I don't know exactly how it's going to come down in one hour, but God says it will, and everything else he said is going to happen has happened. I mean, if you think about this, consider this, if you will. For God to spell all this out, I would say it really isn't even possible until the invention of the smartphone. So when you think about it, all this stuff that God is saying, he said 2,600 years ago, 2,000 years, all this stuff that God said is going to happen is not even possible until the last decade. And if God was right about all the rest of that, he's right about this. And it's pretty easy to understand because this last global empire is like a Ponzi scheme. And you know how Ponzi schemes fall. They seem to rise like a meteor and yet they collapse overnight. And again, for those of you who like to study world history and you also study economics, you understand that one of the, one of the things about our world's system of economies is that they haven't been connected. 
Not completely. So that when one economy collapses, there's often another global economy, another powerful economy that acts as a tow truck to pull the other economies out of the ditch. When we had our issues in the 70s and early 80s, Japan was strengthening. And today it's China. So if you look at if you look at world economies, typically in the past, when one economy's down, another economy's up. But if you have it completely global and all the eggs are in one basket, when it goes down, it all goes down. So I offer those things, and I have so many things I would share with you, but how do we know we're in the zone? Well, we've been in the zone, according to Jesus, for 52 years, and yet, and all the stuff that's supposed to happen, is, it's just like turning over the cards. It's like dominoes falling. It's happening so fast. It's like I said, I was writing about this Wednesday and went home and read the news and you know the rest. Why is it the worst time in history? There are two reasons for that. And if you read Revelation chapter 6 through 19, the awful things that are going to happen, it's going to be really, really bad. So why is it going to be the world's worst time in history? Let me give you two reasons. And we're talking about the tribulation period. It is very important for us, first of all, to recognize that in the world that you and I live in, it is dark and wicked because sin happened. And we have surrendered our first parents, Adam and Eve, and we're sinners too. So we've surrendered kingdom authority over to Satan. But while Satan is still working his world system, God is at work too. God is at work redeeming. God is at work doing his work in the world. But this world has flipped God off with both hands since man has been here. And basically mankind has said to God, we don't want you here. We see that happening in our own nation today. When the women and men who founded our country did so, they founded our country, our, our judicial system, our legislative system. They founded this country on Christian principles. That doesn't mean that everything they did was Christian. There were some bad things, but still, if you look at the initial founding of our nation, it was on Christian principles. But in the last 75 to 100 years, it has been like America has done everything it can to tell God, we don't want you here. And it should be said that this has not been done primarily through the legislative bodies. It's been done through the judicial branch. Time after time, the Supreme Court of the United States has issued rulings that have flipped God off and basically said to God, we don't want you here. But let's not just blame the Supreme Court because it is part of our culture as well. If you want to know who God is, you go back to the beginning and you look at Genesis and the Bible says in the beginning God, but our culture says there is no God. That is the prevailing viewpoint that is taught in public life in well, taxpayer-funded America, that there is no God. In the beginning, God, but no God. In the beginning, God created. But I was taught from the second grade on in public school in Texas, and I'm 62, I was taught that, no, God didn't create the world. The world happened by accident. All of its sophistication and intricacy. Now, anyone who really believes that shouldn't go out with a, something without a helmet protecting their head but it is the prevailing concept. 
You read a little further, and the Bible says God created them male and female. <laughs> We're exploring with all kinds of ideas about that today. It is basically, how can we tell God we don't want him? Why is the tribulation such a terrible time? Because God is saying, if you want me to leave the room, I will step out and leave the room. And God will let mankind see what it would be like to have a world without his restraining power. There is a second reason why the tribulation period is going to be so bad. I talked about this in week one and week two. Satan knows that his time is short, and this is his time to be worshipped. He has always wanted to be worshipped, and so during the tribulation period, he will bring about his system of worship. Now, here's one thing you need to always remember about Satan. Satan has no creative vibe. You do, because you're made in God's image, so you're creative. But if you study Satan, he has no creative capability at all. All he can do is copy, replicate, and imitate. So he's going to try to bring about his own trinity where he is the corresponding person to God the Father. His Messiah will be the Antichrist, and there's somebody that the Bible calls the false prophet that I think will be his cheap imitation of the Holy Spirit. And so consequently, when you study the book of Revelation, you see that Satan wants to be worshipped, and consequently, because of that, it's going to be a catastrophic time. I want to just say something to someone here today or watching. Someone is watching and saying, I just don't really know that I want God in my life. Well, here's the deal. You, only have, <laughs> you really only have two, two entities that you will serve. Bob Dylan went through a season of his life where he really wrote a lot of Christian stuff and a lot of Christian songs. And one of the greatest songs that Bob Dylan ever wrote, and I still love listening to it, it's on my playlist now, his songs, you got to serve somebody. And Bob was right. You're either going to serve God or Satan. And I'm going to tell you something. If you refuse God, there's something you need to know about serving Satan, and that is he has no love for anybody, including the people who serve him. He cares nothing about them. Well, I know I'm in overtime, so I need to come to this question. How will it affect me? The seven-year period of time, this final empire, how will it affect me? Depends on where you are. It really does. Because Scripture teaches us that God has not, God has not slated us slated us for this period. God has not slated Christians to go through this period of time. I've conducted over a thousand funerals in my years of being a pastor. How many hundreds of times have I stood at that tent in the cemetery and read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the coming of the Lord where the Bible says, I would not have you to be ignorant about those who are asleep in Christ because if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so also will God bring with those Bring with him those who sleep in Christ. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Bible says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout and the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So consequently, before this clock ticks back up, God's taking the rest of us home. Now how he's going to do that, I don't know. It's instantaneous. I'll leave that to him. 
But it's so important that we understand that God has got work to do with the world. And someone would listen to that and say, man, that's kind of freaky stuff about God just like taking us all home at one time. Well, not really. Because see, God needs to start the clock back. God's got some cool stuff that he wants to do with Israel. They belong to him. And, and God's got wonderful stuff that he wants to do in the nation of Israel. And those of us, oh, you're a Christ follower, we'll be in the way. And I'm looking forward to Jesus coming back. Now, someone could say, I don't know that I'm really interested in that. Well, if you stay here, if you stay here, and that's, that's your call, I sure wouldn't take 666. You might want to think that over, okay? Because the Bible says that those who do will, will have no hope at that point. So you remember that. I don't know about you, but if I were you, I just want to go on that first load. <laughs> now, there are a few Christians today who are going around teaching that we will have to stay in the tribulation, and I know some of those. I've got friends who teach that. I was in a booth at Freddy's with one of the... I better be careful here or I'll give away who I'm talking about. But he's got a big radio show, global. People call in, ask questions. And I backed him on a corner on this, and finally I just said, hey, you can stay if you want to. I'm going. One last question. Why does God allow this? If, if, if this empire is going to collapse, why does God allow it? If he didn't say, I wouldn't know. But he said, so I know. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we get the answer to why God allows all of this to play out. Because remember, Satan has kingdom authority in this world, and God is doing work in our world. The Bible says the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is patient for your sake. And I love this line. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Think about that. God doesn't want anybody in hell. He wants everybody to turn around. That's what the word repent means. It means to have a change of thinking. And the reason why God is waiting is there are more women and men, and boys and girls, to come on board and to trust him. And when, when the last one is in, then God calls time. I bring this message to you today because I want to ask you to be serious about this. You know, I'm, I know I'm in overtime, but I just got to say this. When I open up my smartphone, which I do all the time, see, like all of us do, we check what's going on in the world. So much of what we read about doesn't make a bit of difference. We're so filled with information that doesn't lead anywhere. This is critical. If I were here today, I wouldn't leave this place or I wouldn't turn off the television or, or sign off from the computer. I wouldn't leave it today without making sure that God's patience was well invested in you. He is patient for your sake. 
And the Bible tells us that anyone, anyone who is willing to turn, we just read it. Jesus, the Bible says God is not willing that any should go to hell, but that all should turn. He wants everybody to come. So consequently, you've been invited, and, you, and it's not about living a perfect life because none of us can, and it's not about joining a church or a religion. It is about committing your life to Jesus Christ, who is the champion. God in flesh, God in skin. He ran the table for 33 years, never did one thing wrong, laid that perfect life on a Roman cross, and the way God saw it, the blood that came out of his body was a currency that paid for everything that you and I ever did. And the Bible said right now there's a deal on the table, and the deal goes like this. If you will come with all of your brokenness to Jesus and put your confidence and trust in him, he will forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future. Your name will be written in the census book of life, and you can never be lost again. I've never found a better deal than that, and right now it's on the table. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray a prayer that you can repeat if you wish, because the important thing is what you mean. I'm going to pray this prayer, and you can pray it in your heart, and then you will know that God hears your prayer. Would you pray with me, please? Everyone, north, south, television, internet, pray with me, please. Dear God, I am a sinner. I am flawed and broken beyond repair but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose again. And since he's alive, I want Jesus to be my savior and my king. I trust my soul to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, hey, all over the campus, there's a gift I want to give you if you just pray with me. Go to any info center, and all you got to say is, I pray with Mark. You can also text, uh, pray to 97,000, and we'll be ready for you. Nobody will hassle you, bother you. There's just a gift box with a Bible like I preach from and a book I wrote. Thanks for being here. I'm looking forward to seeing you next weekend.